So, so an example of complexity in language would be that I have heard that Eskimos have 18 different words for the word snow. Because they can see just by looking at it. In fact, everybody who uses the word snow will then use modifiers to define the various qualities of snow. But um, the, the definitions and the qualities of snow is not the same as having your face rubbed in snow. That we can talk about snow for weeks. We can talk about it being cold. We can talk about it being wet. We can talk about it in many different ways, but the experience of having our face hit with a snowball is completely different than any words that we could use to describe it. Mm -hmm. uh, so in that regard, if a, um, if a picture is worth a thousand words, then an experience will fill a book mm. and still miss it. So basically what we're talking about is, is to try to convey an experience to the students. Mm. And what we wind up doing instead is giving them lists of things, mm. things to memorize, things to learn, things to practice. Uh, uh, basically, what happens is, is that we keep giving them one new ladder after another without teaching them how to climb ladders. And so it takes a kind of a frame of reference. And so in this regard, I'd like to teach Sanapana. Sati this way, rather than the traditional uh, first tetrad is the body, the second tetrad is the feelings, the third tetrad is the, uh, the mind, and the fourth tetrad is the mind's objects. Uh, and the reason why it's listed the way that it was was because that was the traditional way of listing it. But that the Buddha kind of stole the concept. Well, since there weren't any copyrights back then, I don't think that we necessarily use the word stolen. But there is the physical reality that we live with in the sense that there are physical hard objects. There are wet objects. There are uh, uh, gaseous objects. And then there is this thing called fire. And this was the original first four elements that mankind had as a quality of an element way before the periodic table came about. And so the, the Buddha's whole, I think the biggest aspect of it was is that in the time of the Buddha, the way that meditation was practiced was with casinos and other outside objects like corpses, and mud pies and actual fire and uh, watching the heavens, uh, doing stargazing, that kind of stuff, and brought that back in to the four elements within the body, within the human being. Once we understand that, now we can put to the point of, if you decide uh, that you're going to be practicing a practice like Anapanasati based upon these things, it would assume then that you only need to want, work on one of them at a time, which means that today all we need to do is bring the body into the meditation hall and the mind and the feelings and the mental objects can take it, can stay in bed and, and have a break. 
And then tomorrow, the mind has to come in, leaving the body, the feelings, and the mind's objects off someplace, okay? No, we can't. When we take ourself, if we talk about it as a self, if we take the aggregates into the room, we got to take it all in there. Mm-hmm. In that regard, that means that at this particular moment, we might need to deal with one or the other of them at this particular moment. And so what we need to do then is understand them all so that we can be ready for anything that happens. That's the way to begin to approach. So when we say body, we're not saying body separated from feelings. Mm. In fact, in the important part of the quality of the, uh, the situation is to see how feelings um, affect the body and how the body affects feelings. And also how feelings with the body affect the mind. That's really easy to see when we point out that people can't think straight when they're angry. And I rest my case. So if we can get our mind really clear of all of our angers and disgust and uh, uh, problems of life, then we have the capability of thinking really clearly. Mm. So part of what we're doing here is to sort of clean out the garbage that's associated with all four of these things. But the place that we start is with the mental objects in the sense of paying attention to the breath. And so we're bringing both the body and the air uh, into the situation right from the get-go. Am I watching the body? Or is my mind wandering away off into the wilderness, off into the clouds, off into the airy fairies, off into the um, magical worlds, etc.? All kinds of places the mind can go that nothing else can go. (laughs) (laughs) And so uh, we begin with that to see, wait a minute, there is a physical world and a mental world. And we used to think that they were the same thing. That here I am in the world and what I experience, I experience of the reality of the senses, etc., like that. But very soon we begin to recognize through meditation that there's a division there. There is this actual reality, Rupa. And then there is this nominal thing, or the, uh, the, the nama, which is the mind itself speaking in basically its own language. And that language that the mind is speaking is not really the the language of experience. It's the language of concepts, the language of naming things and articles. I think the part of the reason that really got started was humanity made a major mistake right from the get-go in language, in the sense of looking at physical objects and naming physical objects like axe, tree, like that. If we had started developing our language by anger, sadness, grief, and stayed with a language of emotions, our language would be completely different in structure. But we don't live a language of um, uh, feeling. We live in and operate through a language of nouns or naming things. 
And so that's the way, kind of the way that we think. And all of these thinking thoughts that were in the mind, then we can say, well, we're, wait a minute, we're going to start training the mind here. We're going to try to remember to keep the mind focused on the breath. Now, right from the very beginning, we can see that, well, there's two kinds of ways of focusing the mind on the breath. One is to kind of haphazard do it. Yeah, I know I'm breathing. And then there's a really strong focus of knowing that this is a long in-breath and knowing that this is a long out-breath. And each in-breath and each out-breath is intentional and well-known. If we practice it that way, that means the mind is much more likely to stay completely focused on it. But if we leave the, if we say, yeah, I'm doing Anapanasati because I'm watching the breath, but the mind can start wandering easily and eventually within a minute or two wander away completely. Mm. So in that regard, by actually watching and paying attention to the body, in a way we're now in reality. The body is here now, is having sensations and feelings and breathing and all of that stuff is done right here in this pleasant moment. And then we began to say, wait a minute, there's a whole lot of other stuff going on right now in this present moment, too. Like me thinking about what the breath is doing. And start beginning to watch what the mind itself is doing. And also we began to recognize that there's some feeling components in here. And that normally when the mind is wandering away, it wanders back into our old traditional way of living our lives which was based upon a view system that was not as wholesome as it could have been. That children make a lot of mistakes, especially when children learn from children. Because basically what they learn from each other is (laughs) how to beat each other up and take their toys away from them. (laughs) And some of those kids never learn. Some of them, in fact, grow up doing that call themselves politicians (laughs) or cops. So we learn a lot of bad habits when we're young. And that because of all of those bad habits that we learned as young and continue to practice throughout our life, if we don't become awake to those things and start to see what's really going on inside, then we're basically... Uh, doomed to repeat it. But if we can begin to see what's going on in the body, in the feelings, in the mind, within the mind's objects, by that very seeing, now we have choices. We can begin to do something about it. And so, in fact, in a way, that means that this waking up process of sati, of remembering and coming back and seeing what's going on in the here now, is a skill to be developed or a group of skills to be developed within each one of these tetrads. And there'll be time to develop the body and there'll be times when we need to develop with the feelings and there'll be times when we need to develop with the mind and there'll be times when we need to develop with the uh, mind's objects. And that um, which time is which is basically dependent upon the situation not upon uh, a list of things in some textbook going by that order, but rather going by the natural order. Bhikkhu Buddha also calls this the natural method, 
as opposed to the organized method, knowing that the larger your audience, the more organized it needs to be, while at the same time, the more organized it is, the less we can actually transmit the actual experience that we're trying to transmit by using concepts. And so keeping the audience very small is quite useful because the students are much more likely to really get it than when you're in a large group. Because somehow or another, every teacher winds up talking over the heads of every student in the building. Somehow there's some magical uh, thing in me, Bob, that's the student body now. And we start teaching to the student body and every student in that student body misses what's going on. I remember doing that and getting caught at it. <laughs> and so um, taking it from the organized method back into the natural method, even though I discussed it in a certain order, it's going to be a natural thing. But part of that nature is that some things are actually just easier to do and to see than in others. And so we use that kind of a natural progression. And so in that regard, I would say that in within Anapanasati, we have four tetrads. Each tetrad has four groups. And that there is a beginning point in each one of these four groups. So there's four beginning points. One of the four beginning points is the long in-breath and the long out-breath. That's the first step of Anapanasati. Okay. And within the group of um, uh, feeling, joy is the first item on the list. Which means that we start developing joy right away. The word in Pali, by the way, is pity, and we'll do a lot of research into that later. But just uh, that. The next one is, is in the uh, tetrad for the mind, the first item on the list, which would now be uh, step number nine, is basically to experience the mind, to wake up. This is sati. To wake up and look at what's going on. You may, in fact, when you wake up, to see if the mind is drowsy or is it sharp? Has it been... Uh, off in the wilderness, is the mind dry now? In other words, we begin to understand the nature of the mind as we start to practice. The first thing we do when we wake up is, what's going on? The answer is, the mind has just started up. It's just going on. It's coming out of the old past and into this present moment. Within the tetrad of the uh, Dhamma uh, Nupasana, that tetrad starts off with the understanding of Anicca, the beginning to understand that everything is changing. Now, there's a whole lot to do with the, uh, the, the Dhamma Nupasana that precedes that. But within the actual context of, of operating Anapanasati, that's the first item on the list. Now, what I mean by that is normally uh, uh, the first item on the list is actually the hindrances, because that's what we begin. We wake up to the see that the mind has wandered away. So that wandering mind is actually not part of the, uh, <laughs> uh, the first uh, skill to be developed. <laughs> and when you recognize it, you say, oh, no, the first skill to be developed is to see everything in flux, to see the mind in, in motion, 
to see that nothing is set and and stable or satisfied, that everything uh, is in uh, play. A kind of example of that is everybody on the planet thinks that they're living on a ship that's docked. But only the sailors on board are quite happy to go out to sea because they've got sea legs. All the land lovers, they can't walk hardly. They don't know where they are. They're out of balance. They want some stability in their life because they haven't learned to manage themselves yet. Okay. So that's actually a good example then that the sea lakes would be equanimity. To be able to bring the mind to where the mind has sea lakes. How do we gain that? Is by recognizing that everything is in motion. Everything is changing. And we've got to go along and change with it in real time. Literally, those are what we mean by the sea lakes. And so now we begin to understand that this is a whole collection of stuff. And that collection of stuff can be kind of referred to as me. And so starting off with that, I mean, we're not going to wind up there. We're going to take those four foundations of mindfulness and turn it into the five aggregates to see that there's no me in there anywhere. But meanwhile, back to the to the point that we normally think of these four foundations of mindfulness is the four divisions of who I am, but they're basically just four divisions of ways of looking at the, at the things that are going on in the following way, that if we can wake up, if we can begin to see what's in the mind, then that means that we can see, are we watching the breath or is the mind wandered away? The next item on that list within the context of the Eightfold Noble Path would be step 10 of Anapanasati, which is gladden the mind. To wake up and gladden the mind. Wake up and investigate and see what's going on would be the waking up process. This is often referred to, but sometimes misunderstood by the students as the English language word mindfulness. But we need to actually look at mindfulness torn apart to see the constituent components of it. And the most important constituent component of mindfulness is to wake up, to be here now, to see what's going on, to recognize what the mind is doing. This is called sati, wakey, wakey. That's, you know, that's what we're doing. We're waking up, literally. That's why, that's what the word bow means, is to wake up. And we're not just saying, oh, one day after many years of sitting on my uh, butt, squatting on the floor, will Bodhi happen? No, it happens as a, uh, as a matter of course. Bodhi is what we need to keep practicing. That waking up, that waking up, that waking up. So it becomes a kind of automatic or at least unremitting is the right word to use. It keeps coming back. And so this is the main skill to be developed, which is in fact that step nine of Anapanasati, along with the investigation of what is it when we wake up, what's the mind doing? Let's wake up and see what's going on. Wake up and smell the coffee, they say. And what are you going to do if you smell coffee and it smells very nice? You're going to drink it, okay? So that's where we come in with the gladdening of the mind. 
is that we're going to brighten the mind. We're going to cheer the mind up. More than likely, if the mind has wandered away from the breath, and it's going to do that, um, here's an example. They say that each individual human, on average, will take 14,000 breaths a, a day. I don't believe that. I think that's far too high. We're somewhere about 13,000. <laughs> Depends upon, in fact, your rate of breathing, too. And so meditators will probably be down at five or 6,000 breaths a day. But meanwhile, how many of them are you going to know for sure? Not many. So we need to actually increase that count. Mm. So that we can wake up and know what kind of breathing we're doing. Perhaps know what kind of breathing we're doing as we're going to sleep. Know what kind of breathing we're doing when we wake up. Know what kind of breathing we're doing when we're sitting on the crapper. Know what kind of breathing we're doing as we get off the crapper. This is the kind of way that we begin to practice is, and in the process of that, that uh, knowing and waking up and using the breath as a solid anchor, then is a set of skills to be developed, the skill of sati, the skill of right effort, and uh, the skill of right view is coming right along with that because we're practicing. We couldn't practice at all if we didn't have right view. And it's gonna wind up very soon and can be practiced, in fact, is that fourth element on the Eightfold Noble Path, which is right uh, attitude. The attitude that I can do this, the attitude that I can, in fact, throw the mind's objects out and bring in new objects. Throw out the objects that just live there, inhabit the place, you know, the squatters and all the stuff that I've been thinking for the past 10 years or more, a lot more, <laughs> and put in the mind the kinds of thoughts that we want to have. That's literally the whole basis of the process is to put in the mind the kind of thoughts that we want to have and take the benefit therein. And the benefit therein is, in fact, that we feel satisfied. We feel successful. We feel safe. Why do we feel all of those things? Is because now we're not feeling the opposite of those things that come naturally. We're actually developing the feelings that we want to have. Developing the feelings that we want to have. So begin to think about that. What kind of feelings do you want to have? How do you want to feel? And then the question is, well, why don't we feel that way? The answer is we don't remember to feel that way. And not only that, but the way that we feel will be changing over time as we're, as our skills and our wisdom improves, so will our view about what kind of feelings we want to have. You had a question? Yeah, I wanted to ask about a quick um, example of right view, but you just said it that basically it's it's uh, to, to know what's what's good for you and what's not good for you, basically, right? Exactly. 
is to know with that kind of discernment. But it's not in the sense of uh, too deeply focused, but rather broadly focused. Yeah. An example of that would be, you, you probably heard of the game, the whack-a-mole game. Okay, so you're a little kid with that whack-a-mole and you begin to notice that that center whack-a-mole comes up most often. Most often that one comes up. So I'm going to stand there and I'm going to watch that. And every time that whack-a-mole comes up, I'm going to be sure to get it. Well, guess what? There's going to be a lot of other whack-a-moles coming up. And even we're not whacking them because we're not seeing them because we're paying too close attention to one of them. One's right view is to see all of the board and see all of the whack-a-moles as they come up each individual one and whack it. So that's right view. Right view is to stop looking at one and start looking at, at everything in a, in a general sense. Now we'll talk more about that right view uh, in detail later. But this is what I'm getting at about one's right view. And that, in fact, one's right view increases with scope as we uh, uh, gain our in wisdom. We begin to see and, and detect more and more and more, basically, that it's better to be friends than enemies. But that's a hard lesson to learn. Most people in most lives, they don't ever learn that. They think the world is dangerous and it's better to consider somebody an enemy because now I'm going to get him before he gets me and then my life will be good. Hmm? <laughs> and then that kind of life, though, is not good for anybody because everybody's out to get everybody else first. But when we see everything as friendly, then we have a chance of cooperating. Well, this is an important skill that needs to be developed on the inside also that we need to not see our bad feelings and our wandering thoughts as enemies but rather as this is what's going on and in in fact um begin to treat our our bad feelings and our thoughts and whatnot uh as uh house pets rather than monsters in the beginning, when people start to meditate, they begin, oh, this is so hard. No, it's not that hard. That's the attitude. The attitude needs to be changed from this is really hard work into actually I can do this. I can train that animal in my mind. I can make it into a pet. I don't want to kill it. Just, just take control over it and so when we take control then of our mind we can begin to feel the way that we want to feel so that's kind of the point that we're looking at now so within Anapanasati we do step 9 and 10 allowing step 4 and 5 to emerge and that's the joy these are skills to be developed develop the skill of uh, satisfaction, sukha, by developing pity, which is joy itself in the sense of the joyful ability to do it, winning, championship, 
raising our arms in the air and cheering. Yeah, I got that thought out of the mind. <laughs> okay, so this is the way that we begin to feel is to feel successful at being able to think the kind of thoughts that we want to have. And in that regard, we begin to now choose to feel a certain way. So that means that we ultimately then will begin to develop the ability to feel the way that we want to feel. How do we do that? Just as we've been saying, but it's easier to throw thoughts out of the mind than it is to change feelings. But if we can throw the thoughts out of the mind, that means now we can change our attitude and feel uh, the, the joy of success as opposed to whatever we were feeling when we were thinking the way that we were thinking when we caught the mind wandering away. This is basically how we're doing it. So by the numbers now, we have already touched on Anapanasati step one, the long in-breath and the long out-breath. We've touched on step nine of Anapanasati. And we've also stopped on step 10 or 13. Kind of all at the same time, are we watching the breath or are we not as a sati? We look to see, is the mind wandering away? Is it in hindrance? That's step 13. And now we look at the breath. Are we watching the breath? And that's step one. The next thing we do after step nine and, and one and uh, uh, 13 is step 10. And that step 10, then, is to gladden the mind. Wow, I'm glad I don't have to think about that fight I had with Aunt Susie anymore. Not right now, anyway. And so we can throw that thought out. And we can take a deep breath, and then we don't even have to feel the way that we were feeling when we were arguing in our heads with Aunt Susie. <laughs> we can take a deep breath and say, wow, I don't want to feel that way. I want to feel really good about not thinking about Aunt Susie. So in that regard, this is how Buddhism is known as via negative. Once you take the crap out, the emptiness and the joy is available. So we don't want to add something to our practice. We want to take stuff out of it. <laughs> And so this is the beginning of the way that we, uh, we practice. We practice with um, step one, nine, 13, 10, five, and six to get started. And we do that over and over and over and over again. And as we do it over and over and over again, we develop that very beautiful thing that's built right into Anapanasati, but is described separately as five aggregates that come together in one's practice. What are those five aggregates? At this moment, always in the moment, not, not next year and whenever later. But in this moment, we are free from hindrances. The second part is, is the rapture and the pleasure that is born from that seclusion, from those hindrances. Wow, what it is such a relief to not worry about Aunt Susie right now. And we begin to process that in the sense of allowing that to be a really joyful thing to drop that burden and feel good about dropping that burden, feeling success successful about dropping that burden. 
And by doing so, that sukha and uh, pity will start to build up. But it has to be done over and over and over again. Now that we have those three things, the uh, seclusion from hindrance, the rapture, and the pity, the next thing that needs to be there is done with taking those deep, long breaths and also the waking up process of the mind, which is actually what we would then call step uh, uh, 11 of liberating the mind. What are we liberating the mind from in this particular moment? We're liberating it from Aunt Susie's argument. And by liberating the mind from that, now we're beginning to see all of these steps of Anapanasati fitting right in to just one breath. Mm-hmm. But it's not that I practice breathing for six months and then uh, feelings for six months. No, in one breath, we've got uh, all four of the tetrads in operation. Now, each one of them is a skill to be developed independently. So sometimes we'll spend more on one and more and more time on the other. But now let's look at that long breath and the benefits of it, because the benefits of the long breath uh, is is that it be, it helps to wake up that students have a lot of trouble in meditation because the mind gets dull, and sometimes they'll know it gets dull, but they don't know that there's an easy cure for it. The easy cure for dull mind is to wake up. How do we do that? Is by taking a deep breath. Taking those deep breaths, so that deep breath that we're talking about is actually a factor of getting the mind, the frontal cortex of the human brain. You probably heard that most of the um, it's almost a joke on the um, exercise community when they find out that 70% of all of the calories that a human normally burns in, in one day is 70% of it is on the top of his head. All of the work that we do is mental. And so when we're here pumping iron, what does that mean? That means we're not thinking very well because <laughs> we're thinking machines now. <laughs> And so that thinking machine needs the same elements that fire needs. What is that? To get energy out of a fire, you need the fuel and you need the heat and you need the oxygen. If you can rob a fire of any one of those three things, that fire will go out. And forestry and, and I mean, firefighting, this is their primary point. We can cool it off with water. We can take the, uh, uh, the next fuel away from it, or we can starve it for oxygen. For instance, by putting a blanket over fire, uh, it may burn the blanket, but it'll smother it and put a lot of it out. So most of the time when we're dull, it's because we're not breathing well. And so to wake up the mind, we intentionally take these deep breaths, and it wakes us right up makes the mind what Bhikkhu Buddhadasa calls fit for work. So now that we have these five elements, and what is the last two? Applied and sustained thought, which means that we can apply the mind to what we want to apply it to and keep it there. And that makes, that requires a mind that's really fit for work. A mind is not fit for work will, you know, wander away from the, the task at hand. When we can actually apply and sustain the thought, 
with those qualities that we've already talked about, the freedom from uh, seclusion, our seclusion from the hindrances, the joy of being able to do that and the satisfaction of doing that, these five elements is what is called first jhana. Mm. First jhana is not something to be attained to. Mm. It's something that happens naturally when you're practicing correctly. So it's not a it's not a step on some organized path. First jhana, second jhana, third jhana. You know, and this is the way that they think about it in in uh, the the ideas with Westerners. But basically, what the Buddha is saying is this first jhana has the qualities that we're needing because we haven't shut the mind down completely. We haven't stopped it talking, but we can, in fact, direct it to think the kinds of thoughts that we want to have rather than thinking the kind of thoughts that we're in the habit of thinking. Okay, so now we've talked about how to get into first jhana, and we keep practicing that over and over and over again. That jhana may not last but a moment or so, but then we start again. We take another deep breath, we take another hit on uh, the happy machine, the gladdening of the mind. Well, I can do this. One more time, we keep talking. Basically, we learn to talk ourselves into being joyful. Mm. And people will say, hey, that sounds like cheating. And then we say, well, wait a minute. How did you talk yourself into being miserable? Um, can I just ask a question about that, um, pro that process? Because... Um, that's something I've struggled with. It can feel Don't quite. Struggle. <laughs> I didn't know you struggle once. <laughs> but that uh, to return to the breath and then be like, "Yay, I've done it." That can feel quite hollow, you know. But you, I, I've been just saying it. Is, okay. You know, it, it. You have been saying it hollowly because you don't believe it yet. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, it, it is. Is the advice to keep? I mean, I, I and it's not to say that every time it feels hollow. That's not true. But <laughs> even when it does, I will still say it. You know, sometimes my... it rings like a bell, huh? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, but it, uh, the advice is to keep saying it. You know, and then mm -hmm. by that, these is, are it... not affirmations, right? You know, there's been many thousands of books written on affirmations, and I can see the teenage girl standing in front of the mirror in the bathroom, trying to firm herself, saying, I'm, I'm going to have a good day today, and I am strong, and I am happy, and all of those affirmations, and she doesn't believe any of them. That we cannot talk ourselves into it that way, but what we can do is that we can um, become comfortable and happy and pleased and be able to congratulate ourselves for what we can do right now. Mm. And remind ourselves that if I can do it this time, I can do it next time. Mm. And so you allow yourself to settle into a state of satisfaction. That's actually the state that we're looking for, the satisfaction and the ability to sustain that satisfaction. Then, in fact, now I'm beginning to touch on uh, step seven of Anapanasati, 
is to make sure that you're sustaining it by beginning to watch what it is that's affecting the mind that will take it out of this first jhana. In the beginning, that step seven is just going to grab you and it's going to throw you right out over and over and over again. Mm. But eventually we get practiced well enough that we can maintain first jhana just long enough to begin to see what it is that pulls us out of this first jhana. Mm. Okay. What is it normally? It is the feelings. But it can also be the unwholesome thoughts that leave with feelings. And um, can I give, can I give a quick comment too? Sure. Um, to the question with the, like uh, about the uh, feeling sometimes that it feels hollow to come back, and w what is really important for me is so when when I when I when I see that that this happens in my practice, then most of the time I'm forgetting the deep breath after coming back and enjoying the the first deep breath after being because then you automatically have the, the good feelings and it, it if you feel good it can feel hollow really mm. so that's really important for me um, yes. when I do this coming back yeah. mm. he's exactly right energizing the body mm. and the mm. mind through this deep breathing mm -hmm. this is an essential part of Anapanasati practice and it's funny that that's what <laughs> the Buddha named this practice was <laughs> mindfulness of breathing that means actually you have to actually be mindful to breathe because the normal breath is what you're doing already what's the point <laughs> might as well call it mindfulness of thinking or while thinking it doesn't make any sense you know no this is mindfulness of breathing that means that we're actually going to uh, keep that body and mind system energized like that fire Mm. Come on, baby, light my fire. Mm. <laughs> We're talking to the breath when we say that. <laughs> Taking the breath of life in. Just, I mean, this is it. We, this is uh, breathing is our exchange with the universe, with the environment. This is what our breathing, in fact, is what makes us part of nature. You are actually part of nature. Let's mm. begin to start watching that process of that deep breathing and recognizing that nature itself is coming in. And nature itself is taking this junk that I'm throwing back out. Mm. Called an exhale. I don't know why I call it junk. I mean, carbon dioxide, <laughs> the plants love it. <laughs> but that's just their attitude. <laughs> So taking these deep breaths, that's what um, Ferdinand is exactly right. That's yeah. the important point, is to mm. keep those that deep breathing going. Mm. It's mm. a really important part of the process. And if we don't, then uh, the mind will get dull, will start to have thoughts, mm. and that that jhana gets lost. And often we don't even know it until it's gone. So today I want to stop with this, uh, merely talking about how to get into First John, and we'll talk more and more about how to sustain this later. Mm -hmm. But we've already given the basics, and that is what kind of thoughts you have. If you have good, high-quality, wholesome thoughts, that will help you sustain. But if you have junk thoughts, 
Mm. If you have ordinary kinds of thinking, that will be the back door by which the mind just wanders away from what you're doing right now. Mm. And you'll lose that sense of satisfaction. You'll lose that sense of joy. Mm. You'll come up with thoughts like the thrill is gone. <laughs> <laughs> Instead of, come on back, thrill. <laughs> mm. Cool. So let's leave it at that. Thank you right. guys for. Thank you so much. Either one of you have any questions? Um, I think I will next time we speak. Um, All right. The, yeah. <laughs> Ferdinand, you have any questions? Gosh, it's so good to see you again. <laughs> um, no, I mean, um, not not really, no, not really. I mean, I had some questions coming in, but but uh, now I remembered that breathing deep is quite important. I think I'm fine again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay, guys, thanks so much. I see you later. See you later. Thanks so yeah. much. Nice to meet you, okay. Ben. See you around. Bye.